Well, as you turn in your Bibles to Mark 15 today, as you turn there, let me ask a question that each of us should come to answer, even if it takes more consideration, more study, more prayer than just in the next hour or day or week. Here's the question. What problem did Jesus come to fix? What problem did Jesus come to fix in your reckoning? Was it the problem of the Roman subjugation of the Jews in the first century? If so, how did that fare? Was it the problem of first century Judaism in desperate need of reformation and refreshment? One new popular idea is that Jesus came to bring some of the best mystical teaching from the East and combine it with some of the best teachings of Middle Eastern Judaism. Maybe Jesus came to teach us how to prosper. Maybe Jesus came to give us our best life now. If you want to know what the problem that Jesus came to fix is, look squarely at the cross. We look at the cross to see the problem that Jesus came to fix. If you don't understand why he died, then you won't understand who he is. If you don't understand why he had to die, you won't understand what your biggest problem is. As we read just a few minutes ago, the cross of Christ is either the power of God unto salvation for everyone, for anyone. Or it's foolishness, and really foolishness at best. I mean, Paul said it's either God's wisdom and God's strength and God's glory. Or if we can put it in our own terms, he would say it's either those or it's grotesque. It's an offensive thing. Let's look at the cross through the words of Scripture in Mark 15 today. See what you see. We looked at these same verses back on Good Friday, but that being four months ago and this scene of the crucifixion of Christ being always so important, we'll look at it again today. There is indeed, as always with God's word, there's more meat on the bone for us to chew on. Mark 15, starting in verse 20, it says, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander, and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those also who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma simbactani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Five C's will help us organize our thoughts in this passage today. We'll see a cross, a crowd, a cry, a curtain, and a confession. And if you're disappointed that I've ruined the suspense of filling out your sermon notes page, well, you really should have bigger things to do here than just that. So we'll shake it up every now and then, I suppose. Here's the first C. There's a cross. Of course, the cross is the center of the whole scene, just as it is the center of our whole faith and the center of the Bible and the center of God's plan. And it's really been the central thing which is driving Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It was back in chapter 2 that Jesus started talking about a day when he would be taken away from the disciples. It was in chapter 3 when when the religious leaders back then started plotting to destroy Jesus. There are foreshadows and hints here and there, but by chapter 8, Jesus was explicit. Chapter 8, verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said something similar in chapter 9, and then the longest of the predictions in chapter 10. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. When confronted by the religious leaders in chapter 11, Jesus told a parable about wicked tenants who ignored their master, and their master sent messengers. They ignored the messengers. They even killed some of the messengers. Then the owner sent his beloved son. They refused to listen to the son, and they killed him too. It's then that Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 and says that he is the stone that the builders rejected, but he has become the chief cornerstone. And this is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
The cross has been looming in the foreground, if we can put it that way, all through Mark. But now it snowballs, and the snowball picks up speed and grows. You've got the betrayal of Judas, the prayer in the garden, the arrest on that Thursday night, the trial before the Jewish council. And last week, we saw the trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate's somewhat reluctant sentence of death quickly put Jesus in the hands of his executioners. And so we saw last week the soldiers and their cruel torture and their creative mockery. These were men who were skilled in the theatrics of pain and humiliation. So severe was Jesus' beating, verses 15 to 20, this before the cross, that he could not carry the horizontal part of the cross to the place of his execution. That was a tradition that was also meant for further suffering and further humiliation to march it there yourself. But we're told in verse 21 that a a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, he was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. He traveled into Jerusalem from North Africa, no doubt for the Passover weekend, and in happenstance, as we put it, in providence, he was thrown into the epicenter of human history. And most likely, he learned exactly what significance this played. In other words, we seem to think that later on he became a Christian. Likely, his sons became Christians because we're told by Mark, this is Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. These are not only knowable people, so you can go find them and ask them if they know about this story and whether it's accurate, but apparently these are known people. Sons are not usually more famous than their father. Perhaps they were more known in the church 30 years after these events took place, as Mark wrote these things down. This is a family that could not only testify to the truthfulness of what happened, but were probably known among other Christians in the Roman province. Rufus, a Rufus, is mentioned in Romans 16. Paul sends greeting to Rufus. It's probably the same one. I mean, how many people name their kids Rufus? I don't know. But scholars think it was probably the same one. Simon walked the cross to the place called Golgotha, the place of a skull, an outcropped hill that probably looked like a skull, and which would have been a fitting place, public, on display, outside the city, a deterrent to would-be criminals in the future, and it just happens to also look like a skull, the place of death. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, we're told in verse 23. Most likely this this wasn't an act of kindness, but a, a way to prolong the suffering of crucifixion. A little burst of energy, a little numbing of the senses, and a little bit longer suffering upon the cross. Of course, Jesus refused this wine. He was to drink the cup that the Father had for him, and he was to drink that undiluted. And they crucified him. Verse 24, and they crucified him. There, there it is. There's the crucifixion. It's four words in most English translations. 
It's three words in the Greek, and it's only two if you don't count the word and. They crucified him. In Greek, that's two words. So the long-awaited crucifixion of the Christ, the crux of our faith, is relayed to us in two words. No mention of the process, no mention of the nails. Preachers love to get out the, you know, the giant nails, the, the, the ties they use for railroads and, and show you how big it might have been. And that's useful, I think, to think about what it might have been like because we're detached from it. We haven't seen one happen apart from movies or what we've read in books. Mark could have done that for us. He could have described the blood being shot out or the screams that he made or, or he could have talked about each strike of the hammer upon the nail into the hands or arms or feet. But instead he writes, they crucified him. As I've said before, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't record the gory details of the crucifixion partly because they're already assumed for first century readers who know them, and even more, I think, because, because they can't be the focal point. There were a lot of crucifixions in the first century. This was no ordinary crucifixion. The focus is not on the gory details, which could elicit pity without faith, Instead, here's what Mark and the other gospel writers emphasize in their accounts of the crucifixion. The mockery that surrounds the cross and the meaning of the cross. Two M's. The mockery surrounding the cross, the meaning of the cross. That is, the circumstances and the sayings that happen around the crucifixion that give meaning or interpretation to it. That's what they emphasize. So watch for those in the rest of our study this morning in Mark 15. Watch for the mockery and the meaning as, as Mark's emphasis. The next few verses, 24 to 27, they highlight the actions of mockery and humiliation. They divided his garments, casting lots for them. By implication, this means that Jesus is naked or all but naked. He, he is their occasion for gambling and for sport. And his very last possessions have been plundered by pagans. Think of that in terms of Joshua, 1 Samuel. Israel's enemies in those days. Think of where you find plundering happening in the Bible. Here's one place. They plundered his last remaining items right there at the cross. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. This recalls the soldiers' mock coronation that we saw last week. This recalls the Jews' response to Pilate. We have no king but Caesar. This recalls the irony of the truth of the matter, that he is the king of the Jews and the king of the whole world, the king of kings. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. So this is Jesus' humiliation, his rejection, his condemnation in actions. And then it turns to his mockery in words. Secondly, a crowd, a crowd. The mockery rises to a fever pitch in verses 29 to 32. Now the crowd, 
Earlier in Mark, it's not always the same crowd because they're in different locations, but just that phrase, the crowd in Mark had such great fascination with Jesus that they mobbed him wherever they went. They went ahead of wherever they thought he was going to go. He was like their rock star. He had to be clever and strategic about his comings and goings. Once he had to have a boat behind him just in case they came in so close they would otherwise crush him the boat became the escape route. But the crowd is fickle. The crowd always is. The crowd, the crowd at your high school, the crowd at your work, the crowd of this world, the crowd of the poles is easily impressed and easily disillusioned. And so when we come to chapter 15... The crowd is the coup de grace at Jesus' trial. They clamored for the release of the murderous, thieving, insurrectionist Barabbas. And they clamored even more for Jesus' crucifixion until Pilate had to satisfy the crowd. In our passage today, Mark doesn't use the word crowd. But that's really what he has in mind here. By crowd in the outline, I mean everyone else around the cross. The passers-by, the religious leaders, those being crucified with Jesus. You see in verse 29, those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads. They said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. How ironic. The temple of Jesus' body was being destroyed in that day. An essential part of the Jerusalem temple, Herod's temple, actually would be destroyed in mere hours from this. And the whole temple structure would be destroyed in less than a generation from this moment. And in just three days from this moment, a new temple would rise up, just as Jesus foretold in John 2. Destroy this temple, meaning his body, and I will raise up a new temple, meaning his resurrection body, on the third day. You see, these passers-by thought that the cross proved the failure of Jesus' prediction. But the cross was actually the first half of the prediction, you have to have death before there's resurrection. They thought that the cross was proof that he couldn't save and that he wasn't Messiah. But the cross was the plan for the Messiah and for salvation. The chief priests also, verse 31, with the scribes, they mocked him to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. And how they spoke far better than they knew. He actually did save others. They admit this. Meaning he healed people. He freed those who were demonically oppressed and possessed. He did save others. And this is true. In order to save others even more, he cannot save himself at this moment. Had he saved himself here or at the garden then he would not save others. The priests and scribes continue their deriding in verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. 
You get this? They pin their unbelief in him on his failure to show enough signs. And they don't doubt that he's shown some signs. If you read Mark through once more again, you might notice they never actually debate whether Jesus healed, whether he really freed a man of demon possession. No, that's not up for debate. They know, they saw, they were there some of the time. But they have no idea what it means. They don't realize that saving like that means he is the one, and they don't need one more sign. Just like Rockefeller's cash, they just say one more, just one more, one more big one, and we'll believe. Of course, they wouldn't believe. But do you see how wicked unbelief is? It so often blames God for it. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Literally, they kept on reviling him. These robbers, perhaps insurrectionists with Barabbas. Yes, we know from Luke's account that one of these insurrectionists or robbers who was crucified next to Jesus had a change of mind. He came to believe in Jesus, and, and he was saved. It was on the cross, though, that that kind of change took place. We know that because the other gospel accounts say two robbers were reviling him. Now, Mark generalizes, I think, for a purpose. He generalizes and says two robbers, not, well, there was one. But then there was this other one going to the conversion story of the, the one to, to the left. Mark generalizes because I think he's emphasizing the darkness of the whole scene. With pen strokes like this, two robbers reviled him also. We're reminded here that in Mark, there's no good thief who sides with Jesus, defends Jesus, and will later that day be with Jesus. In Mark's account, there's no John and Mother Mary where Jesus talks and passes Mary's, Mary off to John and to his care so gently and kindly and sweetly. In Mark's account, there's no, Father, please forgive them. There's no, into your hands, I commend my spirit. It's just dark. Jesus is alone. There's no help, and the whole world is against him. So he was mocked by his executioners, by religious leaders, by casual observers, and by dying thieves. And let's not forget, he is still mocked today. This is not a first century thing. You'd think that at the safe distance of 2,000 years, that today Jesus of Nazareth could be easily forgotten, easily dismissed, easily ignored, because he's totally unthreatening. And yet, people still revolt. They're still angry. A few years back, Kathy Griffin, a, a female comedian, gave an accept, acceptance speech for some award. and She wanted to make clear that Jesus Christ had nothing to do with getting this award. In fact, she added, this award is now my God. Earlier this summer, two million gathered in the streets of San Paulo, Brazil, to stage a mock crucifixion. The transgender person playing Jesus was actually whipped and bloodied before stretching out on a cross under a sign which read the charge, 
homophobe. Or you just think of Lady Gaga's new song, which I wouldn't know about unless I Googled this kind of stuff, but she has a new song about being in love with Judas Iscariot and how she washes his feet with her hair. On and on we could go. These are breathtaking. They should be breathtaking. On the other hand, this is nothing new. It's not even a problem of 2,000 years. This is as old as the serpent in the garden. This is what King David wrote about in Psalm 2. The nations are against the Lord and against his anointed. It is a universal problem. And we must remember that none of us are innocent of it. None of us are innocent of blasphemy. We sang last Sunday of that, that modern classic hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and we said, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The whole crucifixion scene is a window into the problem of human sin and rebellion. We are all born rebels blasphemers. None of us seek God on our own. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would not be attractive to human eyes. The Messiah would have no beauty or comeliness as we count beauty and comeliness that we would be drawn to him. And really, I think that's Mark's point in stacking up the different mockers the way he does. Remember, the disciples have all fled. The women followers are there at the cross, but at a safe distance. The pro-Jesus crowds of previous chapters have mysteriously evaporated or turned against him. And surrounding the cross of Jesus here, everyone is pushing in the same venomous anti-Jesus direction without exception. Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, those who had a self-interest in Jesus' demise, like, like the religious leaders, and those who are simply passing by. Roman guards, who in some ways we could say are just doing what they've been told, following out their orders. And bandits, these robbers, who in their final hours use some of their last dying breaths to revile the Savior. Isn't Mark painting the picture for us that the whole world is against Jesus? And without grace, that's us too. Thirdly, there's a cry. We see a cry in verse 33 and following. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sembechthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness, then a cry. They go together, they're related, they go hand in glove. But just think about the darkness first. At the sixth hour, that is 12 noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And why did this happen? A few different reasons. One, because God said so. He said it would. He said in Amos 8, 9 about the day of the Lord, 
on that day. I will make the sun go down at noon, the sixth hour. It didn't just happen, it happened on time. Darken the earth in the broad daylight. The darkness means mourning. Darkness is sometimes used in scripture for judgment. And so darkness fell over the whole land. This is a scene of mourning. This is a scene of judgment. The sky went dark because something is going on here on a cosmic level. Something between heaven and earth. That's happened before. Darker, this is a darker episode than other ones where there was a meeting between heaven and earth in Mark's gospel. You might remember that at Jesus' baptism, the sky was torn open and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son. You remember at the transfiguration, clouds showed up in a loud voice from heaven. The father said, this is my beloved son. But now, here in chapter 15, with Jesus upon the cross, the voice is silent and the sky is dark. And after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1, a psalm of David. It's a lament psalm, is what we call them, a a holy complaint. It's being honest with God. In Psalm 22, David felt forsaken by God. These lament psalms, though, almost never stay right there, all except one. Don't stay in lament or complaint, but they move to remembrance. And then they begin to preach to themselves. And by the end, they have confidence in God's plan and even praise for what he will do. So, when Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1, he was expressing something like that and something totally different than that. You see, on the one hand, Jesus was identifying himself with the suffering saints of every age. He sang a lament psalm from the cross. Perhaps he even walked himself through that lament psalm, not staying in lament, but in his mind, maybe not outspoken, but in his mind, walked himself through that very psalm, thinking about the progression of lament, remembrance, recounting, preaching to self, confidence in him, and praise at the end. It's likely that Jesus wasn't just thinking about the first verse of the psalm. That was a common way to refer to a psalm in those days. They weren't numbered back then, so Jesus didn't say, Psalm 22, and then say it. Anyone referring to any psalm would probably use the first line to refer to the whole psalm. And yet, something far more important must be said and must be stressed. Jesus is not expressing just excitement and confidence and exaltation and praise. In fact, he's not even saying just what David said in that one verse about being forsaken, but something so much more. Jesus faced a kind of forsakenness that David never faced, nor anyone has. Jesus was, in a real sense, forsaken by the Father. 
as he bore the multitude of sins of a multitude of people which no man can number. When we say Jesus was forsaken by the Father, we don't mean that the Father gave up on Jesus or that Jesus gave up on all hope. It's not that Jesus' prayers ceased to, ceased to be answered at this point. Hebrews 5 tells us this. Hebrews 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That's the happier parts of Psalm 22 being fulfilled. But because Jesus upon the cross was not only dying a physical death, but paying an eternal judgment for sin and for sinners, for that time, he was cut off from the Father. He was being treated not for what he was and for what he had done, but for who we are, for what we've done, and for what we deserve. The theological word for this, also in the Bible, is propitiation, a big word. All it means is the quenching of God's wrath. It means that on the cross, Jesus was a sponge of God's judgment for all those who would ever call on him in faith for salvation. To put like this in Romans 3, God put forward Jesus, a sacrifice, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness or his justice because in his divine forbearance in days of old, he had passed over former sins. A guy like David goes to heaven not because he hasn't sinned or because he's performed enough sacrifices in the Mosaic law system, but because there was an IOU on his account for which Jesus paid later on. This is the cup that Jesus was praying he would perhaps get a pass on that night in the garden. He prayed that it be taken away, if there be any other way, and there was no other way. There was no heavenly answer to his prayer for another way. The silence, in fact, was the answer. The silence was a foreshadow of what was to come hours later upon the cross. Jesus was bearing a curse for those who are accursed. Galatians 3 tells us this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, let's think about curse theologically, because curse isn't hex. Curse isn't just that we live in a cursed world and things are harder than they could have been otherwise or we sin more than we should. Think of curse as the opposite of blessing. Think of the Arianic blessing of number six. Do you know that? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and the Lord give you peace. That's the opposite of curse, that's blessing. So turn that blessing upside down and inside out, and there you have curse. May the Lord damn you and abandon you. May the Lord turn his face from you, bring darkness upon you without any grace. May the Lord look away from you 
and remove all of his peace. That's what Jesus bore that day on Golgotha. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one other reason why Jesus referred to the first verse of this whole psalm, Psalm 22, it's so we would read it. And that we would see him all through it, not just in the first verse. And we would be further convinced that this was all according to God's plan. So listen to Psalm 22, or turn there if you'd like. Listen to a few verses here. Why did Jesus quote from Psalm 22? One, it was a fitting verse. Another, he was identifying with suffering saints. And and another is that he was showing this is the plan all along. David wrote about himself in a way that actually fit Jesus even more. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 22. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my mouth, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's almost like God gave the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, and the bystanders around a menu for what to do that day. And they were simply following the orders, going through a checklist. Okay, we should do this next, according to Psalm 22. Of course, they weren't doing that. But God is shown to be sovereign. That because Christ was forsaken, we can be forgiven. And because he was rejected, we can be redeemed. That was the plan all along. Fourthly, there's a curtain. Verse 38, we see a curtain. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Just like the darkness that happened three hours before, this is a miraculous event connected with the crucifixion and death of Jesus, and it's one that even more gives us meaning or interpretation to what's going on here. This enormous veil separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, let alone the world. This enormous veil, 80 feet tall, 24 feet wide, as thick as a man's hand is wide. That majestic curtain, making up a tapestry of heaven and earth, cherubim embroidered on it, a picture of the gateway between heaven and earth. That curtain, which could only be moved and opened once a year, and that by the high priest, him alone, for one purpose, to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he could only enter after all these rituals of purification. That curtain, which for 
364 days out of the year for the priest and 365 days out of the year for everyone else in the world was a stop sign, a turn back, wrong way, do not enter. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom when Christ breathed his last. Why? Because that system was all done. That temple was all but done and gone. A new temple had come. Full atonement had been made. The true and final sacrifice had been received. Free and open access to God's presence now for any and all who would believe that Christ had made the way and the sacrifice was sufficient. That the cross is not a sad death, not unfortunate. God's plan. It was torn from top to bottom, like the strike came from above, like from God himself. It was torn, a fairly uncommon word in Greek, used only one other time in Mark, when the sky was torn open at Jesus' baptism and God spoke. Here, there's no need to speak. The symbolism speaks louder than words. God tore open the holy of holies. If you want more commentary on the curtain of the temple being torn, read Hebrews 9. Almost all of it's about this one thing. And then Hebrews 10 even continues. I will read Hebrews 10. But read Hebrews 9 later if you get the chance. In Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says, we have confidence to enter the holy places the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, that is, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Tearing of the curtain was like an illustration of the tearing of his flesh and his body for us. So then we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but instead encouraging one another. Encourage one another with all of the manifold implications of Christ's sufferings for us. Listen to this from Ezekiel Hopkins, the 17th century Irish preacher. Encourage yourself like he does here. Unless faith recalls the sufferings of Christ, not to our memories only, but to our hearts and affections, they will all appear to us as but a story of something done long ago, as a worn-out, antiquated thing. But at this sight of the cross, heaven and earth and hell itself should stand amazed, wherein God himself should suffer, not only in the form of a servant, but in the form of a criminal." in which we see the venom and poisonous maliciousness of the sins of the whole world wrung out into one bitter cup, and this cup put into the hands of the Son of God to drink of the very dregs of it. In the sufferings of Christ, we see the gates of hell broken to pieces, devils conquered, and all the powers of their dark kingdom triumphed over. A sight as this, so dreadful and yet so glorious, There we see the Son of God slain, the blood of God poured out. We see him that takes away our transgressions, 
numbered himself among the transgressors. We see him hanging upon the holes of his hands and feet. All our iniquities meeting upon him and the eternity of divine vengeance and punishments contracted in their full extremity into a short space. We may see the wrath of God pacified the justice of God satisfied, mankind redeemed, hell subdued, and devils cast into everlasting chains. That's what Jesus did. And with the curtain wide open, with access to God available through faith to any who would come, who will go in? Who can go in? Well, the fifth C. There's a confession. A confession in verse 39. It's with a centurion. That could have been my other C, I suppose. A centurion stood facing him and saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. In Mark's gospel account, there's so much confusion about who Jesus is. There are a few good confessions. The demons seem to know that Jesus is the son of God. Peter knows that he's the Messiah, the Christ, but he's not sure what kind. Blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10 knew that Jesus was the son of David. But no human being yet in Mark has expressed what Mark has told us, the readers, back in verse 1 of chapter 1. That this whole thing is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We've heard the Father speak that. We've heard Jesus suggest it in parables or in Old Testament quotes. But no human being has yet put the pieces together that this Jesus is King of the Jews and Son of God. And then the centurion does. At least verbally he does. We have to be careful here that we don't make too much of what he understood because we don't know. We have a few words of what he understood and what he confessed. But I think Mark wants us to connect dots in his storytelling. I think Mark wants us to notice that people in the know, like the reader, God himself, and demons, they say Jesus is the Son of God. No one else does. And then this guy comes along and says, Jesus is the Son of God. And this is a Roman. This is an executioner. This is Jesus' executioner. He was standing in front of him. This was the chief executioner. He's a centurion, meaning he oversees a hundred soldiers. He leads the brigade of crucifixion that day. And he's a Gentile, of course. He's a Gentile. Because God had a global plan all along. God told Abraham in Genesis 22, in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. Here it is. That seed planted long ago, occasionally bringing up little sprigs here and there like a Rahab, like Ninevites, is now starting to bloom and will grow into a tree which branches will reach to the ends of the earth, Isaiah tells us. Isaiah also says that the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and they shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. Even Psalm 22, that psalm we read from, 
that has so much to do with the cross of Christ that ends by saying, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. This Roman centurion leading the crucifixion of Christ confessed him truly as the son of God. If he can, who can't? Whatever you did last night, it wasn't as bad as killing Jesus, right? Anyone can come through faith. Anyone can come who sees their need. This man came, it would seem. He saw. Those scribes earlier in this chapter, they said, if you come down from the cross, we will see and believe. And this man sees Jesus upon the cross. And he believes. He stood facing him and, and saw that he, he died in this way. In this way, he breathed his last. What way? Well, it's probably referring to verse 37, that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. This man saw hundreds of crucifixions, maybe thousands of crucifixions. Perhaps he's never seen one like this because those who die in crucifixion die of asphyxiation. It's really hard to die of asphyxiation and shout. <laughs> like impossible. And Jesus does just that. He went out with a cry. And John tells us it was a cry of victory. It is finished. When he saw that he died in this way, not to mention the three-hour blackout, he saw this man truly was the son of God. It wasn't easy or simple for the centurion to see and believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You have to think of all the stuff he would have to give up or, or could be threat. I mean, this confession, when you're a Roman centurion and Caesar goes by the title God, this is treason. He's risking his life if he says this out loud. This centurion had to totally reorient himself around the fact that there's a God and he's not like the other gods. He's not in the pantheon of gods here. Jesus isn't a son of God and he would have to have a transformation about what he understood to be power and what's powerful. He had to, in that moment, have some sort of transformation from the way of the Roman coercion, intimidation, and threat to seeing Jesus' way as the king and son of God who's full of submission and sacrifice and servantry. So what do you see when you look upon these pages and read of the cross of Christ? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, tells the story of coming into Oxford for the very first time. He was from Ireland. He took the rail to the rail to uh, the rail station in Oxford. I've been there several times. You, you get off of that, and, and and Lewis accidentally walked away from Oxford. He didn't know it. He was excited to see the grand spires, right? These medieval buildings—they're all smushed together. It's really amazing. And the further he walked, the more bland it got. He didn't realize he was walking out of town, not towards town. He remembered, he remembered thinking, well, this is sure disappointing. 
until he got to Botley and realized, I'm now out of Oxford. This is now rural country. So he turned around, and there, over all the buildings he just walked past, there were the spires, more majestic than he'd ever imagined. He said, I'd came out of the station on the wrong side, and, and all this time I've been walking to what was the most basic, sprawling suburb of Botley, I did not see to what extent this little adventure was an allegory for my whole life. You see, it was like an allegory for his conversion. Walking away from it, you don't see it. Walking towards it, you begin to see it. If you're not a Christian, know that you're not outside the reach of his grace. Pray to receive him even today. And if you're somewhere in between these things, then know this, that you start to see the beauty and grandeur of this Jesus and his cross when you start to walk towards it, not when you keep walking away from it. Christian, are you still coming to him? We still come to him. We still enter into his presence. The curtain has been torn down. So why don't we pray more? The curtain has been torn down. So why don't we feel accepted? The curtain has been torn down. Why do we feel like he is stiff-arming us all the time? Jesus has been slain, and he did rise on the third day. And so we can draw near with great confidence, and we can encourage each other unto love and good works, and we can fight, fight that fight against sin, the flesh, and the devil. And, and we can call to remembrance Jesus' original call to those disciples to, to follow him and become fishers of men, and that call later on to take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would deny me in front of others, I'll deny them in, in, in front of my Father. But whoever would confess me before men, I will confess them before my Father in heaven. Oh, what great hope we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of what Hebrews says that in our struggle against our sins, we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but Jesus has. We're thankful that he has, even though we haven't and couldn't. And yet we want to hear the writer of Hebrews warning us, exhorting us to struggle against sin and to struggle against it with some fierceness. Help us, Lord, to look to the cross to there find its power, its transformation. Help us, Lord, to marvel, to give thanks often, to never get used to the reality of what Jesus did for us and what we have in him. Lord, may we never think that we have come to earn it in any way, shape, or form. Help us now, even as we sing, placing ourselves there at the scene of the cross trembling with holy awe and reverence and joy. May we marvel at the Savior's love. May we marvel at all that we've been given. And may we be emboldened to talk about it to others 
to talk about it with each other and encourage each other unto love and good works. Show us Jesus as we consider the cross in song now. Amen.